Up next, A Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Too much on my plate again. Oh, skip the seven TV shows and the movies and all this good stuff. Never mind, people. Oh, we have to collect ourselves. We have to collect ourselves. It's hopeless. Anyway. Ah, too much, too much this week. So many of us are in mourning over the new Supreme Court justice. Oh, political catastrophe. Uh, Check out the New Yorker for uh, April 10 through 18. I don't know how they do that. I think it's two issues in one. Anyway, Talk of the Town is very funny. Funny, funny, funny. (laughs) This is... This judge, Neil Gorsuch, uh, is apparently several degrees further to the right than Clarence Thomas, to say nothing of Scalia. Anyway, this guy must be very clever, Gorsuch, this new judge, because the rumor has it that he picked up the telephone and called Merrick Garland immediately after President Trump, you know, tapped him for the court. How about that? He called up the man who should have gotten his job. Garland, of course, is the judge who should have had the ninth seat on the court. The seat vacated when Justice Scalia died last year, you know, during the second term of President Barack Obama. You know how it is. The president appoints the justice with the, you know, with the advice and consent of the Judiciary Committee of the Senate. He sends his uh, his selection over and they vent the guy and, you know, they just, anyway, they never even, never even asked him to come and, you know, sit there and, and be pulled apart. Anyway, the Appalling, appalling behavior of the senators of the Senate Judiciary Committee, you know, to even refuse to interview Judge Garland, uh, the choice of the then sitting president, Barack Obama, is, it gives me a feeling, a chill wind, chill wind, I think, uh, One of the justices on the court said years ago with regard to something else, he said he could feel a chill wind blowing. Oh, God, I 
I guess I'm becoming a silly woman. I was born the year that Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany in 1933. The thought that I might die in the year when... Ah, when the little bell rang and we became an oligarchy for sure. I don't know, you know, whether we do it a step at a time, a bit at a time, or, you know, in a big rush I have found here. Uh, let's see, an article I must tell you about because, as far as I know, uh, Jane Mayer is in town. I thought it was tonight. I've got to look this up. Get it on the air here. Uh, she wrote an article called Trump's Money Men, Money Man, actually. It's in the March 27th New Yorker. And it's all about the, um, the arrival of an oligarchy. Uh, the guy's name is Robert Mercer and his daughter. Anyway, that's all about the, uh, 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 you know, the money, the funny money, follow the money. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, Gorsuch is my favorite, uh, my, my favorite, uh, I, I can't call, what is it? The thorn in my flesh, the nail. What I wanted to tell you was that he learned some of his, uh, ideology at his mother's knee. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I keep thinking, wondering what, uh, what, uh, uh, Merrick Garland said to him when he called him on the phone. Suppose he said, "Suppose he talked about the, suppose they talked about the dark birds of history." <laughs> anyway, uh, check the New Yorker talk of the town for uh, another fascinating fact about Gorsuch's mother. His mom <coughs> was the mother of a man who is going to be on the Supreme Court for well, maybe not half a century, but for. Hell of a long time, my God, Clarence Thomas has been on for more than a quarter of a century already. Anyway, uh, here it is, here it is, here it is. Uh, <laughs> okay, now, the mother, <coughs> pardon me, the mother of Gorsuch, his mother, was a notably anti-environmentalist, head of the EPA, that's the Environmental Protection Agency, under Ronald Reagan. Once again, Ronald Reagan, he is uh, EPA, uh, well, the head of his anti-environmental, yes, she's an anti-environmentalist. Uh, I, I just, I can't, oh dear, anyway, uh, Actually, yes, uh, Gorsuch, yes, his judicial idol, Antonin Scalia, uh, was definitely in the minority in the Massachusetts, uh, EPA. Yes, Massachusetts versus the EPA. That's it, that's it. The dissenting vote, Scalia grumpily wondered why the agency, the EPA, couldn't just say that climate change science was unsettled and leave it at that. Anyway, uh, okay, uh, his mom under Ronald Reagan. I keep running that over in my mind. Uh, and now Gorsuch is on the court, on the court. I don't know if his mom is still alive. I think I'll try to find out and 
maybe write her a note because uh, it's not clear. It is absolutely not clear what's going to happen to the EPA. Uh, says here in the New Yorker in Talk of the Town that the Trump administration has already proposed defunding the EPA by 31% and cutting its staff by 20%, raising questions about how it can fulfill its most basic responsibilities. Soon enough, the Supreme Court may be asked again what it means for the EPA to be derelict in its duties for America to have a president whose main mode of action is reckless endangerment. That's Amy Davidson writing in Talk of the Town. Oh, yes, President Trump says he's still deciding whether to formally withdraw from the Paris Accords, you know. Anyway, according to this, 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 uh, Met in the talk of the town, uh, Amy Davidson just said it's now clear that uh, if he doesn't, that is, if he doesn't withdraw from the Paris Accords, it will only be because he can't be bothered with the paperwork. Okay, okay, okay. I must calm down because it doesn't do any good to get hysterical. Uh, <laughs> I just love the New Yorker. What would I do without the New Yorker? It's my, my little... Uh, you call it uh, my little script have a, a workshop we used to have workshops uh, called it current events <laughs> anyway uh, I'm looking at the most recent New Yorker on the cover there's a wonderful uh, picture of the president uh, the title of the cover is broken windows you see uh, overweight gentleman uh, hitting golf balls on the White House lawn. And, of course, the windows of the White House are all broken, you know, because he can't shoot straight. Anyway, uh, <laughs> a New Yorker. Hey, I, I marked it up because there was one, one delightful, delightful joke, you know, taught about the egomaniacal behavior of men in high places. Here it is, right? Prince Charles, Prince Charles of England, uh, heir to the throne. It won't be long now before we have Charlie, yes, and his wife Camilla. That's going to be a trip. Um, late 60s, I think he is. Anyway, he considers himself a Renaissance man. One of the things he does, uh, along with all of his uh, good works, is he does watercolors, paints watercolors. And... Uh, Recently, he met the artist uh, Lucian Freud, a famous artist. I believe Lucian Freud is what uh, can't be the son. He must be the grandson of Sigmund Freud. Anyway, very famous. Um, and uh, Charles, Prince Charles, he suggested to the artist that they exchange pictures. You know, I'll give you one of yours, and you give me one of mine, and. <laughs> There, there's no, um, there's uh, no indication in the article that uh, he had anything to say when Lucian Freud demurred. Uh, obviously, I, I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful the way these, uh, these guys. I guess nobody ever told them. Nobody ever showed them what they were doing. Maybe it isn't their fault. My mother always said it wasn't their fault. You know, 
They don't know no better. They don't know no better. Nobody ever told them. They were assholes anyway. Oh, oh, I want to talk about James Baldwin. Oh, golly, I can't believe I've been wringing my hands for 12 minutes. I give up. I give up. Uh, I did want to talk about a wonderful TV show, a play called Wolf Hall. So let me tell you about Wolf Hall, and then I'll get... I have my Jimmy Baldwin stuff here, and I just love this movie, uh, I Am Not Your Negro, but I have so much stuff on James Baldwin, I could I could do it for weeks. Anyway, let me just tell you a little bit about Wolf Hall, because uh, it's something to celebrate. When I see something this good, lately things haven't been so, so great, uh, even in the golden age of... Uh, TV, cable TV. This is really theater. Uh, Wolf Hall. It has an actor called Mark Rylance. R-Y-L-A-N-C-E. He's been around forever. Uh, but I, I guess, I guess people just recently realized, the directors and producers, that this guy's kind of a <clears throat> special actor. Wolf Hall is all about politics and human psychology, just like what is happening today. Only in this story, the characters are mostly too clever for their own good, you know. We're dealing now with uh, monumental stupidity, but being clever can get you in almost as much trouble. Uh, Wolf Hall is about Thomas Cromwell. I believe Wolf Hall is the seat of the Seymours. Jane Seymour was the uh, third wife of Henry VIII. Anyway, uh, the show is about that crowd all around Henry VIII during the Tudor dynasty in England back in the 16th century. Uh, I heard Toni Morrison in an interview recently, uh, our literary giant, Toni Morrison, winner of a Nobel Prize in 1993, you know. She said that she was reading Wolf Hall this historical novel and uh, I haven't read it so I'm behind but anything that Toni Morrison <coughs> even mentions I'm sure is in the top drawer she found it fascinating she said Wolf Hall so uh, I thought that old English history uh, obviously is not too tiresome not too tiresome to be popular anyway human behavior never changes you know uh, times change, yes, the technology changes, that's about it. But uh, in the struggle for power, uh, it's always the same scene. Now, Mark Rylance plays Thomas Cromwell. The cast of this show includes uh, Jonathan Price as Cardinal Wolsey. Jonathan Price is in everything. From Game of Thrones, uh, a show about the Brontes, he played Patrick Bronte, a recent PBS effort to portray the Bronte sisters called To Walk Invisible. Aha, tried to be realistic about the 19th century in uh, Yorkshire. I digress, I digress, back to Wolf Hall, anyway, Anne Boleyn, Anne Boleyn. The face and form that launched a thousand religious uh, persecutions, actually, yes. Blood, 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 blood. Uh, stripped bare the 
finest monasteries in all England. She was a mover and shaker, right? Religion and politics, all the games the gatekeepers play. Now, what's special this time is this actor, Mark Rodans. Uh, he'd been around, as I said, for years and years, but what he's done here, I don't know how to say, he's, he's really portrayed the ordinary man, the, the what is it, the, the, the working dude, the blue collar guy, you know, and how such a man rises to be the, uh, the king's, right hand, as it were, uh, I don't know, I can't, uh, I can't remember all the other, uh, plays he's been in, I believe he played, oh, he played the father in the other Boleyn sister, wasn't much of a part, uh, anyway, he's created this character who is so complex and exquisite, uh, I'm gonna write him a fan letter, I, I haven't been this impressed with an actor, for years, um, just the way he takes his hat off. <laughs> He's got more nuances than uh, I thought possible. Cromwell was the son of a blacksmith. Cardinal Wolsey was the son of a butcher. This creates a bond between these two men. They're surrounded by titled aristocrats who treat them with contempt once again, you know, always this class, what is it, class, clash, the clash of the classes, aha, we see that today in Washington, D.C., uh, mm-hmm. you know, some people simply just aren't good enough to be in the White House, <laughs> anyway, the play begins in Cromwell's middle age, and he's already a wealthy lawyer, he suffers a lot from personal loss. He's, what, calm, stoic. The only emotion he betrays in the first episode of this series is on a visit to his father, the blacksmith. You remember, his wife suggested to him that he should go see his old man, his father, as he stands in the... Uh, blacksmith's forge we see his hand gripping a heavy tool on a bench as he waits for his father to look up and speak to him uh that one gesture reveals all the pain and hurt of a brutal upbringing he has this intensely thoughtful d delivery uh i don't know whether it's the subtext but Everything, all the things that are unsaid, just, just uh, hum. Uh, each word he he weighs, each word, each expression, calculated, uh, manipulative. Uh, he has all the wry humor, carefully couched in kindness, in concern. Uh, his response to Anne Boleyn's sister Mary. <laughs> is startling. Uh, uh, Mary proposes marriage to him, um, uh, well, not directly, but subtly at one point, touching uh, uh, her finger to her lips and then to his, and uh, he has been uh, widowed by then, and she says that she would only marry someone who could upset or would upset her greedy family, the Boleyns, right? 
she had been, or uh, yes, she had been the mistress of Henry VIII. Uh, she is now out of favor. Yes, Mary had a child, yes, a little son uh, by the king. Anyway, Cromwell smiles kindly and he says firmly to Mary, uh, they would kill you. What this actor does, you know, is to gain sympathy and empathy. His uh, Machiavellian talents are not not exactly hidden, but people really don't seem to get him. His intelligence is uh, revealed, you know, uh, in subtle ways, so few words. Obviously, he would be an asset to any of these men as they struggle for power. Uh, now, I'm watching this series for the second time, and it's just getting better and better. Anne Boleyn, heartbreaking in her efforts to rise, you know, to become queen, to control her fate uh, and her nation, what? The fate of others. Why, why on earth all that anguish just to become the mother of Elizabeth I? <laughs> anyway, Wolfhall. Uh, it's a masterpiece theater series. It is actually the one TV series I'm thinking of buying. The last one I bought was The Hollow Crown. That was four, four of Shakespeare's plays synthesized into three. Three. It was uh, marvelous. I've watched that now twice, and I'm ready to watch it again. Yes. Uh, I don't know what it is, but... Shakespeare is the sort of thing I like to listen to, you know, when I'm tired enough to lie down and close my eyes and just uh, give over, you know, give up trying to cope with this world we're in. I just want to go back and review my notes. Last time I did it, well, oh, I was watching a movie called Anonymous. It's all about how Shakespeare uh, was actually the uh, Earl of Oxford, the 6th Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere. I believe it. I believe it. Uh, and uh, it's called Anonymous. The role of Queen Elizabeth I is played by Vanessa Redgrave as an older queen. There are, I think, several younger ones. But uh, Anonymous is an amazing picture. The guy who plays Ben Johnson is the best. But never mind. I must not rattle on. I've only got five minutes to talk about James Baldwin. I think that James Baldwin is probably, what you call it, the American writer of the second half of the 20th century, along with, of course, the novelist Toni Morrison. We don't get very many <laughs> Nobel Prizes in America. Uh, 1993, she won, and it had been years and years, I believe. She's the first African-American woman writer to receive a Nobel. Uh, this year, it's Bob Dylan, would you believe? He's finding it hard to get himself to Stockholm to receive the prize. 
I think, yeah, I think Bob Dylan deserves that one. I was so pleased people finally understand that, you know, the, the, the song, the sound, the sense, it's all together. Uh, I had thought or hoped that maybe Leonard Cohen would be the winner this, this time around, but I think perhaps uh, much as I love him, he's only left us, what is it, less than a year ago. Uh, I think Leonard Cohen belongs to the past. He's exactly my age. And I, I see all that grace and elegance as belonging to uh, my generation. Bob Dylan is tomorrow. He's it. I remember in the 60s being thrown out of classrooms. Uh, I was a substitute teacher that year and I tried to teach uh, Bob Dylan on the page. I liked him better, you know, uh, on the stage with the sound and the music, but every time I tried to play the uh, the records, the other teachers would complain, so I'd turn it off, but I used him in print, you know. I think the 19th Nervous Breakdown was my favorite. And some of the kids said, oh, you're blowing on my mind. And I said, God, I hope so. Uh, But I think we knew in the middle 60s that this was the poet of his time. Uh, I don't like to, I don't like that hierarchy of this is the big one and this is the these are the others and following uh follow ups peoples. I think Bob Dylan is simply one of a kind and we will not see his like again. Nor will we see the like of James Baldwin. Now he's a man who did not keep his pain to himself. He was capable of intimacy the kind which women are said to crave. I remember so much the response of so many male writers. They they didn't want to accept him as the master because, of course, he was a homosexual. And uh, I guess they didn't want him to be the... the, uh, the, the man who represented the black... Uh, the African-American male writer. Uh, This guy really shared his feelings. He poured forth his deepest convictions. And guess what, folks? It became literature, and he did not detest women. That's the biggie. That's a very hard. uh, He was not in any way a misogynist. Tonya Morrison said at his funeral that uh, she always tried to be better when she was near him, that his tenderness was like the first turning in the womb. Uh, Anyway, I think uh, that in the beginning, he believed some of what the white world said about him. This is what... uh, caused him so much pain but then he thought about it (laughs) he said he had to live in Paris for nine years in order to be convinced 
someone could hate him for himself. That is, you know, not for his color. Uh, <laughs> he also said that his father said to him that he was the ugliest N-word that his father had ever seen. And so Baldwin said that after that, uh, his fear of his father went so deep uh, that he could never be afraid of anyone or anything again. Now, I hope I'm going to have time to tell you a lot more about James Baldwin. Uh, check out I Am Not Your Negro, this wonderful new documentary about James Baldwin, because it's the most important documentary around. Uh, it's one about Marlon Brando, but it's not in the same class as this one about James Baldwin. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air again next Tuesday. God willing, until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Every now and then, a new voice brings us profound history that's been hidden, that compels us to know ourselves differently. Bury my heart, it wounded knee did this. So does The Other Slavery by Andres Resendez. He explains exactly what accounts for the swift, tragic vanishing from this continent of so many Native Americans. The suppressed story of Indian enslavement will be discussed by Andres with host Mickey Huff of Project Censored on Wednesday evening, April 12th, 7.30 at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley. This KPFA benefit has wheelchair access. Tickets available at brownpapertickets.com and our bookstore allies. April 12th, The Other Slavery. Oh.